We are uh, doing a, a series on discipleship, and in the midst of that series on discipleship, we're doing a little mini-series on the most pleasant of all topics, and that is dying. Uh, dying to self. It actually is the most freeing topic imaginable, but we don't normally hear it like that. Dying to self. So I started a message last week that I'm going to, I was planning on finishing it this week, but I don't think it's going to get finished this week either. It's a very important topic. Uh, it all hangs on our getting this. What is it to die to ourselves? Uh, let me first review and then we'll get into some scripture here in a little bit. But we uh, saw last week that the goal of all creation and the goal of God's people, the, the reason why God created the world was to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, uh, in creation as it is in heaven. The kingdom is the dome in which someone is king, so the kingdom of God is the dome in which God is king, and his plan, his goal, is to have all of creation to be the dome in which he is king. And what, what we're doing now is driving towards that. When the kingdom comes, as it pertains to us, the love of God will be perfectly manifested to us, in us, and through us. That's the goal of all creation. So that the way we love God, the way we're loved by God, the way we love ourselves, the way we love our neighbor as ourselves will be a perfect mirror of the triune God. We will display the glory of God. We'll participate in the love of God. We'll participate in the joy of God. We'll be dancing with the triune God throughout eternity. God will be glorified. All of creation will be a giant mirror. We will be little mirrors uh, reflecting his glory. It will be joyous. It will be wonderful. And that's the goal of everything. That's what we're driving towards. What we're in now is really not reality. It's a prelude to reality. This is the warm-up show, the gestation period for uh, the birth into the kingdom of God. Everything goes through a gestation period, a growth period. Uh, A tree starts as a seed, and then it grows and then becomes a tree. This is the seed stage of existence. And the reason it's necessary is that love has got to be chosen, and love's the goal of everything, right? Love's got to be chosen. You can't program that into people. And so this is the time of choosing. We've called it the probationary stage of existence, the time of choosing, where every individual decides in their core of their being whether they'll be a yes person or a no person concerning the kingdom of God. Are you a person who's compatible with the dome in which God is king? Or are you trying to make your own dome, trying to do your own thing, trying to be the captain of your own ship and the master of your own fate, uh, to go your own way, lord of your own life, which is it? And every person decides that it's the, it's the ultimate decision that we make in the core of our being. This is the probationary stage of existence. And how we decide will determine whether or not we'll be born in the kingdom or outside the kingdom that will last forever. Secondly, this is the stage we saw last week of spiritual formation. Everyone's being spiritually formed in the sense that we're becoming solidified. We sow a thought, we reap a deed. We sow a deed, we reap a habit. We sow a habit, we reap a character. Sow a character, we reap a destiny. And the question every person has to ask is this. In what direction are you being solidified? Every decision you make moves you forward in that solidification. Are you developing the kind of character, kind of thoughts, kind of deeds, kind of characters, the character that will be consistent with or is inconsistent with the kingdom of God? The third thing we saw that is a prelude to the kingdom, the final thing that's a prelude is this purging fire we talked about last week. The Bible makes it clear that there is, uh, and this is a metaphor now, but a purging fire that will burn away everything that's not consistent with the kingdom of God because nothing that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God will be allowed to go into the kingdom of God. And this applies both to non-believers and to believers. For believers, it's this. Everything, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, everything that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God, everything we've built, the character that we've developed, if it's not consistent, we lose it. Everything will be lost except 
What is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? What is, what is done out of a motive for love? That's why Paul says that love is the only thing that is eternal. It's the only thing that lasts forever. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that it doesn't matter what else you have if it's not done by love for the purpose of expanding love, if it's not consistent with the kingdom of God, which is all about love, it's, you're going to lose it. It's going to be burned up. So this, this time period is, is, is important because it's the one time period we know of that God's given us to build stuff that will pass through the fire. Now the main variable we saw last week, we just need to get this down. The main, the main variable, the central, that linchpin that everything hangs on in terms of deciding whether or not you're a kingdom person and then deciding whether or not you're going forward and building the kind of character that's consistent with the kingdom is this question, have you died to yourself? Have you crucified yourself, as the Bible says? Have you taken up your cross and are you following Jesus? Can you say with Paul, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me? Dying to self or denying yourself is not a matter of loathing yourself, hating yourself, because the Bible assumes that you're supposed to love yourself, to love your neighbor as yourself, which, assume, which presupposes that you love yourself. And um, it's, it's, it's a good to feel good about how God created you. Uh, to loathe who you are is to not to compliment the, the creator. Still, it's dying to the false self, the false ways of getting life. That self that is, that is contrary to, this, to uh, how God would have you live. Uh, crucifying yourself is not a matter of loathing yourself, nor is it a matter of hating the world, of, of deciding that if it's fun, it must be sinful. If it's pleasurable, you know, it must be wrong. And if you're really enjoying it, you should feel guilty. It, it, it's, it, it's not about being world-denying. Uh, the believer, the disciple of, of, of Christ should be world-affirming. Creation is good. He's given us, uh, all this to us for our enjoyment. It, it, it's a, a world-affirming thing. The issue of dying to yourself is not a matter of hating the world. It's a matter of, of coming against a false way of getting life in the world. The way of, of, uh, of, of being autonomous, of living for yourself uh, over and against God. It's a matter of crucifying the false self. The false self is the self that God never intended you to be. It's the fallen self. It's the flesh self. It's the carnal mind. It is that way of doing life where you are the center of everything. You put yourself in the center of existence. You see the world as a stage by which you're now going to get your own needs met. You no longer rely on God as a way of, of, of getting the innermost needs of your life met. You're no longer desperate for God. You may be desperate for a new house, desperate for a new car, desperate for new clothes, desperate for better looks, desperate for a better body, desperate for somebody's attention, desperate for applause or whatever, but you're not desperate for God. You're going your own. It's it's living as though you were Lord of your own life. And that self has got to be crucified, amen? You can't negotiate it with it. You can't play with it. You can't toy with it. You can't compromise with it. It's got to be crucified. Because that self, that, that autonomous self where the world revolves around you and it's always about me, that self blocks everything that's consistent with the kingdom of God. It's captivity for us. We need to crucify that pathetic, self-centered, narcissistic, what about me self. And when we, when, when, when we do that, as we saw last week, when you do that now, now, but only now, are you in a position to really discover what life is about. I mean, really discover what life's about. You maybe didn't know it, but that self was keeping you from being alive. Trying to be free, you became a slave. Trying to be alive, you became dead. And when you crucify that dead self, that captive self, now you discover what true life is, what true freedom is. 
Uh, when, when, you, when you die, you live, the Bible says. When you, when you sell all, then you find the treasure. If you lose your life, you find your life. The treasure we're talking about is the treasure of, of true life. It's the treasure of eternal life. It's the treasure of God's life. It's the treasure of the air that you were meant to breathe and the food that you were meant to eat. It's the treasure that is everything that you really long for, whether you know it or not. It's the treasure of God's love. It's the treasure of God's joy. It's the treasure of God's peace. It's, it's, it's the treasure of God's kingdom. It's what you were made for. And, and, and it, it's the treasure that makes you righteous. It's the treasure that frees you from condemnation. It's the treasure that frees you from fear. It's the treasure that frees you from everything. And it takes giving up everything to get it, but it's worth it, amen? It's worth it. You know, we don't buy the treasure, we just get rid of that old false self that was blocking us from receiving the treasure. So that's how we become kingdom persons. Now how we grow as kingdom persons, and this is what I'm going to talk about here this morning, is, uh, is, is by taking that decision and doing it over and over and over again in our life. Dying to self is not something we do once upon a time and then, we're, we're, then it's over with. Rather, it's a process. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's a process. It's a daily thing. The cross upon which you were crucified, it's a daily thing. The reason is this. Because even though you know that, that the treasure is worth it, even though you know that, there are attachments to the old self, the, the, the old way of doing things. They're, you're familiar to your old self, your old strategies for getting life. There's a part of you that likes that old self, that old way of getting life. And uh, so letting go of it is not always easy. The challenge of spiritual growth is letting go of an old friend. Now that old friend was killing you, but still he was an old friend and you were used to him or her. And so letting go can be tough. My wife and I, as most of you know, were... Uh, just felt right in January that, that the Lord was telling us to, to move. Just get thee over into the city. And so, I mean, it wasn't an ethical thing, like, oh, we're more you know, virtuous or anything like that. It was just like, okay, God, God's telling us to move, and so we're going to move. And it felt so right. It felt so natural. We'd never have second-guessed it. It has just been a joy. Uh, it, it, it was, it, if this is a slam dunk, this is what God wants us to do. Still, it wasn't always easy. You know, I, letting go of that old house, even though I knew that God, I, you know, there was a joy involved because I was really excited about where we're going. Uh, still, I, I had a nice pond. I had, I had this, oh, a nice pond. And these ducks would fly, you know, land. And I have all these memories about catching the turtles, my son and I, catching turtles and catching frogs. And, and you know, it, it's, I used to go out there in the morning and look at, used to look at this crane or this long-necked white, I, I don't know birds, but it used to, and it used to eat the frogs, you know. And it was so fun to watch, you know, just grab and you see the frog legs out and it would kind of swallow it and you know and uh oh nature at its best <laughs> uh unless you're a frog i suppose but i see uh it, it uh i like i like that pond was beautiful and the sounds and i had a gazebo out back with all this privacy boy did i have privacy and i missed that privacy now because i don't have any privacy or not as much and uh i had a gazebo we had a new hot tub oh it was a nice hot tub middle of january out there. in fact it was in the hot tub that we got the revelation that we're supposed to get rid of it all we just got the hot tub god's sense of humor is incredible so you know, letting go of that now it's not this isn't a martyr thing like oh we're so righteous we got rid of our hot tub behold you know no we're, man we got a nice house a lover this is worth it still it's about letting go and so it is with our with our lives we have things in our life that block the flow of god's love and the dome which he is king to us in us and through us it blocks it 
But we're familiar with it, our old strategy, our ways of getting attention, our ways of feeling good about ourselves, our ways of building our self-esteem, our ways of you know, getting happy. We get addicted to them. That self has got to die. And, and, and the process of, of spiritual growth is the process of crucifying that old self daily. The process starts with a decision, a, a one-time decision where you say, I surrender my life to Christ. And it goes forward as we repeat that process. The more we do that, the more we put off the old self, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, and put on the new self, the more uh, the thought becomes a deed, the deed becomes a habit, the habit becomes part of our character, and now you're building something that you'll take with you through that purging fire when you go into the kingdom of God. See, and that's the process of spiritual growth. Now, to make sure that we're getting in on this, that we're really clear on this, and uh, to be motivated to do it, I'm going to uh, outline, I, I was going to outline seven things uh, that affect, what, uh, that are affected by this decision to crucify yourself. I, I'm only going to get through three of them today, and I think I'll do the next four next week, unless the Lord leads in a different direction. Um, but uh, there, when you die, your perspective on things changes. Dead people see the world differently than, than live people, though the dead people are really the alive people. And so I'm going to talk about various dimensions of life that are affected when we crucify ourselves. The first area I want to talk about is physical life. This physical life, the physical world. There's a world of difference between how a kingdom person, how a kingdom person sees uh, the physical world and understands the physical world and how a non-kingdom person sees the world and experiences the world. The non-kingdom person, the person who has not yet said yes uh, to the kingdom of God, who's, who's still doing their own, own thing, uh, to them, the world is ultimate. This is a person, recall. Uh, the Bible says that they are living in the flesh. It's the way of doing life that is cut off from God. Uh, they, they, they may still theoretically believe in God, but, but, but in, in fact, they're doing life on their own. What's real to them is the here. What's real to them is the now. What's real to them is the physical world. They may theoretically believe in God and theoretically believe in angels, whatever, but, but what affects them, what hits them, what moves them, what motivates them, what they think about all the time, where their heart is, is right here and right now. They are, I would describe them as worldlings, and I don't mean that to be insulting. It's just that they are defined by the world. They're, they're, they're defined by their environment. That's what's real to them. And they see the world as a stage by which they get their needs met, how they can meet the innermost needs of their life. They're worldlings. To a worldling, the world is ultimate. Whatever else they may theoretically believe, the world is ultimate. Physical life is ultimate. The here and the now is ultimate. And that flesh, which sees the world as ultimate and as a source of life, that, that worldling self is, is what has got to die. For the kingdom person, that self has died. The kingdom person still affirms the goodness of creation, still enjoys the world. In fact, I believe that the kingdom person enjoys the world more than the worldling because you don't need the world, you see? But you enjoy the world, you affirm the world, you have fun in the world, it's fine, but you don't love the world and you don't need the world because it's not a source of life to you. The kingdom person is one who understands that their allegiance to Jesus Christ and their allegiance to the kingdom and the relationship to the kingdom dwarfs in significance the relationship and their allegiance to everything else. Just dwarfs it. Jesus put it like this in a verse we read last week. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. What a teaching. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying that we should literally hate our, our mothers and fathers and, and our brothers and sisters and, and spouses uh, or ourselves. Uh, because he tells us that we're supposed to honor our father and mother, we're supposed to love our spouses and children, we're supposed to love even our enemies, and we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. So he doesn't mean it literally here. But what he is saying in, in, in typical Jewish hyperbole is this. The difference between your allegiance to the kingdom and your allegiance to anything else should be as great as the difference between love and hate. The difference between your allegiance to Jesus Christ and anything else should be as great as the difference between love and hate. In other words, to follow Jesus Christ, if you want to get in on the treasure, you want to find out what life's really all about, you want to experience that, you want to be growing in that, what it means is this, you can't have any competitors. Uh, Jesus Christ has got to be the meaning of your life, the focus of your life, the purpose of your life without any seconds. Uh, that, that while you love your mother and father and brother and sister and yourself and the world and, and all that, fine, uh, it doesn't even compete. It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't compromise the singularity of your focus to the person of Jesus Christ. Because when you have Jesus Christ, you found the treasure, and the treasure, get this folks, is greater than life itself. It changes your whole view of physical life because the treasure you have in Christ is greater than life itself. So you're willing to sell everything to get this treasure, and that means even putting on, uh, as a far second, secondary thing, even your life itself. The kingdom person is one who has begun to wake up to the trivialness of stuff without God. You follow me? You begin, your, your, your perspective changes. The things that used to seem so important don't seem so important anymore. It doesn't shine quite as bright. It doesn't have quite the pull. You begin to see how everything, everything in life is meaningless without Jesus Christ. You follow me? And, and the worldling can't see that because the, the, the stuff is all they've got. But when you die to that self and grab hold of the treasure, you begin to see how, how empty, how shallow, how tinny, how trivial it is without Christ. You got a nice, big, big house, wonderful, enjoy it, but it's meaningless without Christ. You got a nice, souped-up car or motorcycle, wonderful, enjoy it, but it's meaningless without Christ. You got talents, coming out of your ears and you got good looks and you got a youthful, healthy body, wonderful, hallelujah. But you know what? It's meaningless without Christ because everything that you've got, everything you can touch, everything you can taste, everything you can feel, it's all going to end very shortly and that makes it meaningless. It's just complex dust in motion. The, 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 the kingdom person is woken up to that. Now you take a house and wrap Jesus Christ around it, and now you got something that's meaningful. You take a nice car, you take your money, you take your talents, wrap Jesus Christ around it, and now it takes on eternal significance because you can do something with it that's going to last forever. But the world minus Jesus Christ is nothing. The world minus Jesus Christ is shallow. The world minus Jesus Christ is boring. And the kingdom person is one who's waking up, woken up to that. I just, you know, you start to feel like an alien because, and that's a good thing, because the stuff that jazzes the worldling just doesn't jazz you anymore. So what? Uh, it's, it's so, you know, I, I sometimes watch TV and it's like, how can, people get really excited about this stuff, but it's so empty, it's so shallow, it's so transitory, it's so trivial. The growth in the kingdom life is growing in that perspective where you see the smallness of stuff. That you still enjoy it. Enjoy your house. Enjoy it. Fine. But it, but, but it doesn't own you. It, you see how, how it, it, it's easy come, eh, easy come, easy go. Because you see that without Christ, it's absolutely empty. 
The Lord calls us to die to that pathetic, self-centered, narcissistic self that actually gets excited about such stupid trinkets as that. Even life itself. Even life itself. Easy come, easy go. When you've got uh, the treasure, then even that becomes kind of a negotiable thing. It's like, eh, you know, I want to live. I don't have a death wish. I want to live. But, but you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Because I'm going to live forever anyways, amen? Which leads to my second point. Your view of death changes. When you're a kingdom person, your view of death totally changes. When, you're, uh, when the world's ultimate to you, when, when the world is ultimate to you, then, uh, then death is the ultimate end. And again, a worldling will, will uh, uh, believe theoretically probably in life after death. Most people do some kind of life. You know, they don't, they'll, they'll have theoretical beliefs, but it, it, they don't internalize them. It's not part of who they are. It's not part of their definition. What, what, what's really real to them, what's really real is the here, the now, which you can touch, taste, see, and feel. Uh, that's what occupies their thoughts. That's what impacts them. That's what determines their behavior and whatnot. And f- so really existentially in the core of their being, um, death is the ultimate uh, terror because it means the end of all that's dear to them. So there's a fear of death, a fear of the grim reaper. There's also this, that death, death is the ultimate expose on the silliness of your life. Because there it is. You remember my, the, the Easter sermon, if some of you were here where I, I had my dad help preach? The interesting thing is that my dad's dead. So I, I had his dust up here, and he, pre- he did a good job of preaching too. Uh, oh, see, th- th- there it is. It exposes, uh, if, if you don't have an eternal perspective that really is part of who you are, death, exp- it mocks your life because it shows how silly all the stuff we strive for, trying to build the things that we get so jazzed on, how, how empty and, and shallow they are. So, so th- there's a hatred and a fear towards death. There's also, I think, in, in the heart of every person, uh, a, an awareness of judgment, an awareness that there'll be a moral reckoning, and if you're not uh, related to the supreme being, that can be a scary prospect. So death is a fearful thing. That's why our culture generally avoids it. We, we don't like to talk about it, and when we have to talk about it, we use weird euphemisms uh, that kind of get, get around it sideways. Now to the believer, to the disciple, the one who has crucified themselves, death can't hold any fear to you because everything that death could possibly take away from you you've already lost you're dead you see if death if physical death could affect it you've already crucified it so there's no fear there corpses don't fear death have you ever noticed that and if you've died to yourself there's no fear of death there now what Death does do this for, or should do this to the kingdom person. It is sort of a, uh, it is it, in one sense, it's a gift from God in that it forces our hand to live now. Being aware of the fact that you're finite and you don't generally get to choose how long you're going to live uh, should make us be awake. It should, it should force our hand to live now in the present. Some people put off, even kingdom people put off living. Uh, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll get around to that tomorrow. I'll, I'll become passionate tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll get on board with God tomorrow. But what, what death does for us is it should infuse our life with a certain intensity because you only got so much time to go around and you know how, much, how, how long that time is. Now is the day to live, amen? Now is the day to, now, now is the day to get passionate. Now is the time to get radical. Now is the 
time to get on board with God. This is the day to start uh, really paying attention to your kids. This is the day to really uh, reconcile with your spouse. This is the day to wipe the slates clean because you don't know if, tomorrow, if you got tomorrow or not. Death is, is there as a way of saying, live now. You only have so much time to, to, to get along. Build your kingdom now. Build on the foundation of Jesus Christ now so you have something to take with you through that purging fire because tomorrow's not promised to you. Death is a reminder of that. It, it makes our life intense and passionate, but it shouldn't be something we fear. There should be no fear. Perfect love casts out fear, and we have been loved with a perfect love. It's like this. If you've crucified yourself, then you know that, that uh, the, the, everything that death can take from you, you've already, you've already given up. It has no hold on you. And uh, the only life you have right now is life that is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was crucified, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and Jesus Christ is never going to die again, and I'm in Jesus Christ. Therefore, death has no hold on me. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. The life you have, if it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me, well, Christ is never going to die again. It's that simple. I've got eternal life. How could I fear death? I've got God's own life inside of me. How could I fear death? I'm a participant of the divine nature, it says. How could I fear death? This is what Jesus meant in John 11 when he says, whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he says to Martha? Do you believe this? Whoever believes in me will never die. Does that mean that my body's not going to decompose? Yeah, it's decomposing already, so is yours. Welcome to the decomposition club here. You're going to leave more cells on the seat than you brought in here, okay? It's just, uh, you're shedding cells all the time. <laughs> Get out the Lysol and spray the chairs down. Well, you know, no, your body's going to age. Your body's going to decompose. You're going to get new aches and pains. And, and, and if the Lord doesn't come back to set up his kingdom, we're all going to die, okay? Whatever Jesus meant, he didn't mean that we're not going to die. I'm going to die. This whole body's going to die. But that's not death, you see? To the kingdom person who's already crucified themselves, that's not death. You want my old carcass? Take my old carcass. It's getting kind of weary on me anyways. That's not death. Because I know that when I shed this skin, uh, I'll see Jesus Christ face to face. And that's not bad news. That's good news. That's real life, praise God. Amen. What fear could there be? To the person who's crucified themselves, there is no fear. Death, that's why Paul says, oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your sting? It's like if you knew that a bee didn't have a little stinger, you wouldn't be afraid of it, would you? Oh, bee, where's your sting? I'm not afraid of you. Oh, death, where's your sting? Uh, you know, when you come around, oh, grim reaper, all you do is give me a promotion. So there's, 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 no, there's no fear that is there. Someone said to me one time, uh, it was right after the Easter sermon, actually, said, you know, okay, I, I, you know, aren't you a little bit afraid of that, that, the supreme being? I mean, we're talking about the supreme being. When you die, you're going to face the supreme being. And what if he's mad at you? I said, that, that's, this is the right question to ask. I love when people serve up these softballs. And my, my response was, I said, first of all, the supreme being was very mad at me, but the supreme being took care of everything that made him mad at me, and now he's not mad anymore. <laughs> and, then, and then I said, and besides, you know, me and the supreme being, we're tight. <laughs> 
I talk to him every day. We've got a great relationship going. In fact, the Bible says that we're kind of married, all right? So there's nothing there to fear. What I I recommend is a strategy for people who have a fear of death, and more people do than than, than, than I think we, we sometimes realize. If you have a fear of death, try this exercise as a way of letting that go. When, when, when there's a fear of death, that usually is a sign that there's some part of the old self that's still hanging around. You're clinging on to something that you can lose, and that's why you're afraid of losing it. That's, your fear of death is just afraid of losing something dear to you. The, the, what, what needs to happen is you, for you to crucify that thing that's dear to you, you, you. The Lord will give it back to you, but you, it can't, you can't be clinging to it. And then the fear of death uh, uh, leaves you. But try this exercise. See prayer as a rehearsal for death. I do this all the time, partly because I'm just morbid, but it's, it's a very healthy uh, exercise. Bury your, your, bury your head in the couch, turn off all the lights, and then pretend like you just died. Boom. They, 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 you just died. And the next thing you see, and I'll picture Jesus Christ there. Jesus Christ comes up there, and, and it's like, well, you died, and now you're with me. And now start your prayer conversation. Just pray like you normal pray, pray, normally pray. But see, you, this is the person you're going to see when you die, Get acquainted with him now. <laughs> Now's the time to get acquainted with him. And then it's like, death is simply the, the, the time when no longer will I be praying through him in the spirit. Or I'm going to see him face to face. And that's not bad news. In fact, there's kind of a, for the kingdom person, not a death wish. We love life here and now. Live as long as you can. Be healthy. All of that. At the same time, there's a dimension, as Paul saw in Philippians, that a, a part of you that longs for, for this. He said, he said to the Philippians in Philippians 4, I'm not sure whether it's better to live or to die. Uh, you know, I, I, on the one hand, it's better for me to go to be with the Lord, and I kind of long to do that. On the other hand, it's probably better for you that I stay. So I'm praying that I stay. But if the Lord has other plans, or if Nero has other plans, I'm very, you know, by chopping off my head, which is what finally happened, uh, he, was, he was okay to go. So also, there's, it's like, there's a part of me that, that you know, and I, I, I'm kind of looking forward to that adventure. Uh, I love life. I'm not looking forward to the process necessarily. That can be painful, but death has no hold on me. Because the physical world isn't the ultimate thing for the person who's crucified themselves. And that leads to the third point. The third thing that radically changes when you crucify yourself. Your view of security. What makes you secure? What makes you feel at home in the world? What makes you feel like you're safe? What makes you feel all right? Everybody needs security. Everybody needs to feel safe. That's a, a normal thing. We're created with that. God put that need in us because he wants to be the source ultimately of our security. We're made to live in that kind of environment. The world wasn't meant to be this scary, threatening place. We're creative for security. Now, the worldling, because what's really real to them, whatever else they may theoretically believe, what, what's really real to them is the here, the now, the physical world, etc., etc. So their need mechanism for security, their security mechanism gets attached to the things in the world. That's all they know that, that is really real. So they're constantly try to, trying to feel secure by manipulating their environment or people in their environment by manipulating their world. The need is legitimate. The way they're going about trying to meet that need is not. And there's a wide variety of ways that people express this uh, insecurity and try to uh, uh, address this insecurity. Some people, for example, 
Some people fear the future. They're insecure about the future. And so they're always saving up for the future and they're obsessed with their retirement program. They're obsessed to make sure that everything is just going to be in place because they have this idea that the future is going to be worse than the present. And so they're always storing up. Other people have uh, uh, a a different reaction. They're also afraid of the future, but their idea is that uh, since the future is uncertain, we've got to acquire as much stuff as we can now. You know, uh, it's... it's, um, uh, I don't know if, if, if we're going to have what we have in the future, so let's really acquire things now. My mom, pity, pity the couple that gets married and you have to, each one has uh, those, one of those strategies. My stepmother had the first strategy. My father had the second strategy. My stepmother was, she, her insecurity was that, you know, she went through the Great Depression, so she was sure that tomorrow's going to be bleak and we're going to go without. So you never spend anything. That was her rule. And ration everything. Everything, you know, you just want to save everything. So she would ration food. She rationed clothing. I never got new clothes growing up. She rationed toilet paper. You were allowed four squares for a bowel movement. I am not kidding or exaggerating. That was her mind. She was damaged from the Great Depression. And she had this insecurity. So it was like, we must, you know. Now she married my father, who also went through the Great Depression, but came up with an opposite kind of conclusion. Precisely because the future is uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen, we must spend, spend now. <laughs> Buy things now. And so he always wanted to get a lot of toys and get a lot of stuff and get a lot of things because the future is uncertain. You know, let's play now while we can. What an interesting marriage they had. <laughs> uh, growing up in that household was very interesting. In the end, my dad usually won. We bought things, but my mom succeeded in making us all feel guilty for them. So, you know, that, that was our, our kind of miserable life. But see, both of those things are driven by the same fundamental need, and the need is for security. We need to feel secure. And it's just different strategies for feeling secure. Some people are, their, their fear is that, that, that people are going to leave them and they're going to be alone in life. And so they develop strategies for trying to make it so people won't leave them. Some people try to control people. They manipulate people because they're, they're, they're convinced if they don't control people, the people are going to leave. And sadly, it's the very act of controlling them that usually makes them leave. But see, that, that's their strategy. I've got to control. I've got to make sure that other people, their strategy is more like, like uh, find out what the people like and then give it to them. So they're always selling themselves. These are chameleon people who uh, really don't have a center. They just become sort of whatever their environment calls for them. So if the people they're around like, to be, like, like, like religion, I can do religion. You like humor, I can do humor. You like intelligence, I'll try to do intelligence. You like athlete, athletics, I'll do athletics. You like pretty, I can be pretty. You know, I, I, so they're, they're, they're trying to hold on to people, but it, What's driving it is this insecurity. And see, however the insecurity gets manifested, those world, self, carnal ways of of trying to meet that need are illegitimate and they never work. The person who's in the flesh, the worldling, always has to worry, always has anxiety, must always be striving. It's not life. It's not life. That's not living as God intended living to be. Jesus addresses what real living is. For the kingdom person who's died to self, ultimately the trust, the, the, the security comes from trust, trusting God. Not trying to trust things or your ability to get things, but trusting God. Jesus said this in, in Luke chapter 7 or 17. Those who try to make their life secure will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. Those who try to make their life secure, always trying to make, make, make sure the people are around you, make sure that, thing, you know, that, that you're going to lose life. It, it kills life when you do that. But when you die to self, now you find your life. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6. 
Do not worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? And don't make this into a legalistic thing where you're never supposed to say, oh, what should I wear today? Or something silly like that. What he's getting at is you don't live in that question. Okay, you don't live in the worry about your, your possessions. He says, for it is the Gentiles, it's the worldlings, it's the heathen who strive for all these things. They strive for them. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And trust God that all these things will be given unto you as well. To be a kingdom person who's crucified yourself doesn't mean that you don't ever think about, you know, your house or, or your clothes or, you know, those kind of things. You think about them. You do the work that's necessary to, to buy them. Uh, you know, you, 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 you're commonsensical. You still lock your doors at night. You, you don't be foolish about these things. But you don't live for that. You don't strive for that. It doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, uh, occupy the core of your being. Because in the core of your being, there's this fundamental understanding that you've died to the way of getting life from the security of the world. And you're living to God, and there's a profound trust that God will meet the needs of your life. You trust God for that. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. Whatever you most fundamentally need, uh, the Lord will provide for you. Now what you need, maybe not what you want, but you have a trust that whatever you need, God will supply for you. What's the worst case scenario in your life that you're trying to stri- hang on to? You know, you're afraid of losing your house? Yeah, okay, do what you can to keep your house. But you know what? Losing your house isn't the end of the world. Get a smaller house. It's still probably going to be bigger than most people have in this world. And if, if you can't get any house, you'll be on the street. But, you know, God's still on the street, and he'll, he'll take care of you. I'm not saying it'll be pleasant. But, but th- there's a God. You believe there's a God, and, and he'll be watching over you. What your basic need is, is, is going to be met. You're afraid of losing your health? You're going to lose your health. <laughs> I mean, be healthy. I, really, be healthy. But... Don't cling to it. Don't strive for it because eventually you're going to lose your health. Afraid of losing your life? You're going to lose your life. If you want, you want to have security and you do need security. The real security comes when you no longer try to derive your fundamental security from your health, from your life, from your house, from your car, from your looks, from your abilities. But when you derive it only from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said this, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? See, this is, the, this is the security question. Take away everything else, I can still be secure. Take away the love of Jesus Christ, I'm gone. I'm nothing without you. Who, and, and so now Paul's saying, how, how insecure should we feel in this world? Who can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? And he says, well, hardship? Nah. How about distress? Yeah, been there, done that. He hasn't destroyed the love of Jesus Christ. How about persecution? Nah, nope. Famine, that makes you hungry and you may die, but it won't separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nakedness, it's embarrassing, but uh, it, it, it doesn't separate you from the love of Christ. How about peril, danger, or sword? No, they can cut off your head, but they cannot cut off your relationship with Jesus Christ. In all these things, he said, we are more than conquerors. Oh, I love that phrase. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, uh, he's not saying we avoid all these things and that's why we conquer them, but rather, in all these things, in the midst of all these things, even when these all things happen, we're more than conquerors. Why? He says, because I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus of uh, our Lord, and that's what makes us feel secure, praise God. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can touch it. 
What we really need, what we really need is that life that comes from Jesus Christ. And when you got the treasure, everything else is negotiable. Everything else is negotiable. And now there's a sense of security. You still lock your doors at night. You still do the the ordinary precaution things, but you don't strive for it. There's a relaxedness, a lightness that, that, that can and should attend to the person who's a disciple of Jesus Christ who's crucified themselves. You want security? Don't put it on the house. The house can burn down. You need security? Don't put it in your bank account. Banks, is, banks can collapse. And, uh, don't put it in your retirement. The retirement can go south. Don't put it in your good looks because you're going to lose your good looks. Don't put it in your health because you're going to lose your health eventually. Don't put it in your life because you're going to lose your life eventually. Put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put all your security, all your worth, all your value in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you've got a security that the world can't take away. And that's what Paul means when he says, we have a peace that passes understanding. Your house is burned down. Okay, that's not pleasant, but I got the peace. Find out you have cancer. That's really not pleasant. I'll do everything I can to get rid of it. But you know, I, I don't have cancer, but I'm saying you. You have cancer. Uh, you, you, perhaps you found out you have cancer. Okay, do what you can to correct that, but there can be a peace because you've died to everything that they can take away from you. You've died to that as a source of life. Whatever else happens, it's not a source of life. What is a source of life can't be taken from you. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. St. Francis of Assisi said this. He says, those who have died to themselves, of those who died to themselves, we wear the world as a loose garment that touches us in a few places and there lightly. Oh, what a good. We wear the world like a loose garment. Yeah, you wear the world. Okay, you wear the world. You're in the world. You do what you are supposed to do, common sense stuff in the world. But it doesn't have the weight on you. It doesn't have a weight on you. It touches you a few places. You've got to pay the bills. You've got to, you know, do, lock the doors. You've got to, you know, be healthy. But it, it touches you on the shoulder lightly. It maybe touches you on the hip lightly. It's a loose garment. You see, it doesn't weight on you. And so when it's time to shed that garment, it comes off very easily. There is a joyful, wonderful lightness to being that the person who has died to themselves can have, should have, needs to have. A lightness. A lightness. It's like, eh. Eh. So, you're passionate about stuff that, that, that God leads you to be passionate about. But you know what? I feel remarkably light right now. I, it just, it's very light. The, the, the incredible lightness of being when, you're, when, when you've crucified. When, you, when you're dead, you're very light. Amen. A good exercise to grow in this thing is to have as a part of your internal robopathic mechanism in your brain, your self-talk, always this. Life is Christ. Nothing else really matters. Life is Christ. Nothing else really matters. Life is Christ. Nothing else really matters. What a freeing thought. Life is Christ. Nothing else really matters. We you close your eyes and pray? And I, I just want to end with this uh, uh, two invitations. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Maybe it's getting rid of an attachment of the old self. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, when I'm done praying, I want to ask you or invite you to come up here and over to my right on this table. Uh, There'll be someone there who will be happy to explain to you what it is begin to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray 
that you would free us from ourselves. You came to set the captives free in the main prison that we need to be freed from. The main prison is the prison of ourself. Set us free, Lord God. Help us to let it go, to let it go, and to walk in freedom and to walk in the peace and to walk in the devotion of a disciple of Christ who's died to themselves. Let your love flow to us, in us, and through us as we go out into this world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We love you. The altar's open. And over there, if you have questions about becoming a disciple.